welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and um, Caroline's not with us today. And it's very interesting, the, the book that we are talking about today, The Swine Republic by Chris Jones, um, talks about water quality in Iowa. And I look out my window today and our air quality is really, really bad. Unusually, like the worst I have ever seen in Iowa. I understand it's from the Canadian wildfires that we're getting the effect of that now hitting Iowa like weeks and weeks after it hit the East Coast. So um, that's uh, kind of ironic. But anyway, let me tell you a little bit about Chris. So he is a research engineer with IIHR Hydroscience and Engineering at the University of Iowa, but now retired, I understand. So we'll talk about That's that a correct. little bit. He, mm-hmm. holds a, he holds a PhD in analytical chemistry from Montana State University in Bozeman and a BA in chemistry and biology from Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa. Previous career stops included the Des Moines Waterworks and the Iowa Soybean Association. As an avid outdoorsman, he enjoys fishing, bird watching, gardening, and mushroom hunting in Iowa and Wisconsin. He spends most of his time in Iowa City, but is especially fond of the upper Mississippi River and the driftless area of Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. The title of the book is The Swine Republic, Iowa's Struggle with the Truth About Its Polluted Water and Agriculture. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Chris. Okay, thanks for having me. <laughs> Happy to be here. And this book um, is published by Ice Cube Press, and we, you know, longtime listeners to our program know that we have um, welcomed quite a few of Ice Cube Press's authors to the show. Um, and have always found them to be interesting guests, interesting books, and this is certainly no exception. Um, tell us a little bit about what the Swine Republic is. Well, I uh, when I came to the University of Iowa in 2015, they invited me to set up a website, and as they do with all the the research staff. And so I did that and I had been writing uh, quite a bit in previous jobs. And I also, in addition to working for the Soybean Association in Des Moines Waterworks, I also did consulting work for water and wastewater utilities. And in all of that work, I did a fair amount of writing. And so I, when I set up my website here, I thought I might set up a page, you know, where I post essays. And so the first few essays I posted uh, in the beginning years really were not read uh, very widely, but then uh, I did uh, get a sizable readership as time went on. And so most of the book, about 60% of the book, are essays from my website or my blog. And so those focus on Iowa agriculture and how it relates to water quality and uh, other environmental conditions that we see here. Uh, Then I wrote a few essays uh, for the book that were not part of my blog. And then I also wrote a beginning and ending chapter. The beginning chapter describes the history of Iowa agriculture and how it's been manifested in our water over the last 175 years or so. And then the ending chapter are my ideas for how we can improve the condition here 
uh, of our water and still maintain some prosperity here with our agricultural production systems. So let's just start from the beginning because I found the beginning chapter really fascinating. I um, am not an Iowa native, but my family is long-term Iowa. My um, mother's family set, uh, settled in central Iowa, Jasper County in the 1850s, I think. So mm-hmm. we've been here a long time. And one side was attorneys and the other side uh, were farmers mm-hmm. of that family. And so I, I, you know, been exposed to a lot of Iowa kind of agricultural history. And I was really surprised to learn that our issues with water quality and agriculture aren't just from recent times. It's not just because of changes, industrialization of agriculture, although that has certainly compounded it. But the roots of it go much further back. You want to explain that? So our problems have evolved over time, but many of our modern day problems do link back to decisions that were made 150 years ago. And so, you know, in the early days, soil erosion was terrible. When we first broke the prairie with the old John Deere steel steel plow, um, there were there was terrible erosion in Iowa and. So many of our rivers have been muddy for quite some time. But the other early decision that we made was to drain Iowa. And so much of Iowa really would be too wet for farming. See, and that's what I had no idea. I had no Mm -hmm. idea that was the case. So especially the north central part of the state, which was glaciated only 10,000 years ago. And so... When the glacier melted, it left these little pothole wetlands over much of the northern two-thirds of the state. And um, these were there when uh, Europeans arrived here. And so there were thousands of these things. And so to farm that area, we had to drain that ponded water, which were the wetlands, and then also lower the water table down to four feet. And that helps make uh, the soil drier and more suitable for for um, farm work. And so when we drain the water off with drainage tile early in the spring, then that dries the soil out. It warms up faster. You can drive equipment out there without compacting the soil so badly. And so this is um, a very desirable thing for Iowa farmers in the modern age is to have very dense drainage systems to keep the water table uh, down four feet. And when did this whole process of draining start? Well, a lot of it happened before 1910. And so many of the Europeans that arrived here really were um, not people of wealth. They arrived here with little more than the shirt on their back. And so a lot of the land um, was gobbled up by these land barons from the U.S. and also from Britain. And the water was drained uh, from the land in a a concerted way by the land barons that had the means to do something like that. And then they sold off the small parcels to the um, original farmers that arrived here. 
And so this was quite an enormous undertaking. And in fact, there's an article from the New York Times, I think from around 1910, that describes this process and that more funds were spent on draining Iowa than were spent uh, constructing the Panama Canal. And oh my so gosh. This was, this was quite, quite an undertaking to drain all this land to make it suitable for farming. And were the methods of draining it the same, you know, putting in tile? Is so that... the tile then was, were the clay tiles, and a lot of that was made around the Fort Dodge area in Iowa, but also other places. And so these cylindrical pipes came in sections of about a foot or two long, and then they were installed uh, four feet down with gaps in between the sections. And so then that was backfilled with um, rock, and then the water could seep in through the, the gaps in between the clay tile sections. In the modern day, we use the black corrugated uh, plastic porous pipe and if you know what you're looking for you drive across the countryside you'll see these big spools of black plastic pipe sitting out in the field or at a place that sells it and so this can be installed much more quickly um, than the old clay tiles and um, it's much more efficient to use this new material to drain a field and how does it actually drain the water off? How does the water get into the pipe in the first place? So there's um, small openings in the pipe, cut right into the pipe. And so the water <clears throat> in and around the pipe will get into the pipe and create a dry area around the pipe. And so that induces water flow from the higher um, levels of the soil down into the lower levels. And so you induce a flow from the surface down to the drainage tile four feet down. And is it is it really intended then to drain off into the streams and rivers? Is oh, that, yes, yeah. absolutely. And so we constructed these trapezoidal-shaped ditches um, using steam shovels, you know, around 1900. And that was, those were intended to receive the water from the field tiles. And so the field tiles outlet into a, a larger county tile main or directly into the ditch. And these ditches actually were extensions of streams. And so there's not, there weren't a lot of streams in this north uh, central part of the state. What streams they were, were extended up into the watershed using stream shovels so the field tiles could um, be intercepted by the ditch and drain the water off. And so a lot of the upper sections of these small streams look really straight now, and that's because those were constructed streams in the upper reaches. And, you know, I would never have thought that either. Yeah. That we built these streams. We the did. Wow. And a lot of the ones that we do have were straightened. And so um, right here around Iowa City, we see sections of Clear Creek, uh, off to the west in Johnson County and then uh, and in Iowa County and then in the English River uh, south of here has been very much straightened. And what impact does that make? 
Well, it's had a terrible impact. It's changed the hydrology and it's energized the water. And so it's caused these streams to erode downward. And so when you drive across the countryside and you go across a bridge and you look at the stream and they're all down in these canyons, right? Uh, that's not the way they looked in pre-settlement days. The, the prairie streams were shallow streams. They spilled out onto the floodplain very regularly and very frequently. And now they're all down in these canyons, and these canyons are all lined with dirt, and the streams are really flashy, meaning they go up and down uh, very rapidly with rainfall. And so vegetation can't get established on these steep vertical banks, so we have a lot of stream bank erosion, um, and so our streams are always muddy. And now we have pollution tolerant species uh, that dominate these streams like carp and, and bullhead, and then the clean water species like smallmouth bass and pumpkin seed sunfish, you know, they're sight feeders, right? They, they catch their prey by seeing it and catching it and eating it. Well, when you're in muddy water all the time, that's not good for a sight feeder. And so consequently, a lot of our clean water species you know, no longer exist in many of our streams. Wow. And I, so those, um, I'm assuming that having those steep banks also contributes to the amount of silt that ends up down in down river. Without a doubt, yeah. it does. Um, I can, I, I have, uh, years ago, I was canoeing on the Skunk River. I haven't done a lot of that, but it was, and it was at night and it was, like in March. So it was really, the water was really, really cold. There was no intention to be in the water. And, um, but someone capsized that I was with. And so we were, we were getting them out and, and I was trying, I was on the a bank and I was, had one oar and there was an oar floating by and I reached down to try and, and snag that oar. And I just slid straight down that bank, yeah. straight yeah. into the water. So yeah, that's, those are, not the way they're supposed to be. <laughs> Not the way. No, it isn't. Wow. Um, so all of this was, a lot of this was news to me. Now, what's not news to me is that our water quality um, is poor. And, of course, the most well-known um, incident of that in Iowa probably is Des Moines. And sounds like you have quite a lot of uh, experience and knowledge about that. Do you want to explain a little bit about what's going on in, for the Des Moines water system? Well, they knew they had a problem with nitrate in Des Moines clear back in the 1970s. And so that's when we saw this transition to all row crop all the time. And so soybeans came in in the 60s and dis displaced other crops like alfalfa and oats and clovers that have a different environmental footprint. And so when soybeans came in, um, that intensified the production system. And so we saw, and that also brought in commercial fertilizer. And so in the 70s, the Safe Drinking Water Act was passed by Congress and signed by President Nixon in 1974. And um, nitrate was one of the original regulated parameters and nitrate gets into the water from fertilizers being applied to corn primarily. 
And so in the mid 70s, the waterworks saw that nitrate levels were increasing and, and sort of knew they had a problem then, but kind of had hoped it might go away and it didn't. And during the 80s, they violated the standard for nitrate multiple times and then received a consent degree, decree from EPA and Iowa DNR that they had to construct nitrate removal treatment there at the fluor drive treatment plant in Des Moines. And they did that and they began re removing nitrate in 1992. And so when we think about this, you know, that's a long time ago. It's 31 years ago more than a generation ago, we've had this problem in Des Moines and it's still not resolved. And so they've also um, had an, a lot of other capital improvements related to this problem, include, including a treatment plant construction, uh, two new treatment plants, and then uh, development of shallow wells to reduce their reliance on high nitrate river water and so this has been quite costly for the Des Moines area, yes. I would expect that the well water would still get runoff. In so the it does. Yeah. And so the, their shallow wells do have high nitrate, and sometimes they do exceed the standard, but they are lower than the river generally yeah. in terms of nitrate. And the reasons that the river is getting worse, that the, there's more nitrates in the river, have a lot to do with um, – I mean, you go into all the detail of, of what's causing this in these essays in the book, but in a way that I feel is very accessible, very approachable. It's not, you know, it's like you're a scientist, but you're talking like a regular person, <laughs> which is is very helpful. And not only that, but it's it's not only accessible, it's entertaining as well. Um, I, I got to say I was impressed. I wasn't expecting that when I picked up the book. <laughs> Well, you know, if you want to reach general audiences, um, you know, you've got to write in a voice that general audiences want to read in, right? Right, and right. So that's one of the issues I think we have with solving this problem is that, you know, there's a lot of complexity here that's the, the confluence of politics and culture and science and economics and, you know, all that stuff, any one of those is quite a dense topic for yeah. most people. Yeah. All yeah. of those are dense topics for most people. And then you combine them all and, you know, then yes. it becomes really um, intimidating to try to learn. And so, you know, if we're going to solve this, general audiences have to be engaged. And to engage general audiences, you've got to speak to them in a way that, you know, they're going to enjoy being spoken to. And so I think most people, when they pick up a book, they want to be entertained. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to be entertained. I don't want to read, you know, some dry uh, tome. And so I did try, I deliberately did try to write them in ways that general audiences would enjoy. And you do that by bringing in references to literary figures, um, you know, historical figures, um, all kinds of things. And, and with a, with a, a sense of humor too, which um, is very appealing. You're listening to Writer's Voices and our guest today is Chris Jones, author of The Swine Republic, Iowa's Struggle with the Truth About Its Polluted Water and Agriculture. 
So you really did, you know, as, as I read through this and learned more about the situation, there were things that, um, you know, I just didn't realize. And one of them was, okay, I, I, CAFOs are, you know, the uh, confined animal feeding operations, which have been around for a long time, but not to the degree or the extent that they are now. And, uh, you know, I knew that the manure um, was that th these generate was really an issue. But there was always I think there was part of me that thought, well, you know, manure spreading manure on fields is better than chemical fertilizers, isn't it? Well, no, it isn't. <laughs> well, the the answer is it depends. And so, like or, organic farming, for example, we mm -hmm. most people perceive that to be a good. Well, what do they do in organic farming? They fertilize with manure. Right. But the the issue that we have with um, livestock here is not so much that manure is intrinsically bad, it's the way we raise the livestock and then the amount that we have. And so if you look back 25 years ago, 30 years ago, we had about 60,000 farmers in Iowa that were raising about 12 or 13 million hogs. Now we have 6,000 farmers raising 25 million hogs. And so the average hog farmer has gone from having about 200 to three, 200 to 300 hogs now to about 5,000. And so we've made the, this is what I say, we made the manure hot, right? We concentrated it and we made the the handling of it a uh, challenge by concentrating all the animals on a very few farms. And so consequently, the environmental consequences of the way we raise livestock and the way we try to handle and manage this manure is a large part of our water quality problem. So it's not the fact that manure is bad, or it's not the fact that it's worse than commercial fertilizer. It's just the fact that there is so much of it so much of it, and it's harder to ascertain how much of it you need. Correct. And if yes. the crop does not absorb the nitrates in that manure, then they get they get into the water system. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't go up into the Milky Way, right? It yeah. goes somewhere, and the somewhere is there air and water. Yeah. And um, that causes the environmental outcomes that we don't like. And... The other thing that surprised me a little bit, I mean, I was kind of aware of it, but was this the fact that farmers are tend to plant now clear to the edge of the streams yeah. instead of allowing a buffer. Why do they do that? Well, they want to, the reason they want to do it is they want to maximize the number of bushels that they can harvest. And so, um, a lot of it too is they want the fields to be square and so you look at the equipment that they have and you know it's very large 54 row planters are not unheard of and so you know to do that a lot of times requires you know turning a blind eye to what's best from a conservation perspective but you can find uh, corn planted right up to the edge of a road uh, even here in Johnson County 
uh, just like you can find it planted right up to the edge of a stream. And so, you know, they're just trying to maximize the number of bushels that they have. And so that's where, you know, I kind of make fun of this idea of we all want clean water. Well, if we all wanted clean water, we wouldn't be planting corn right up to the edge of the stream, right? Right. And, and so we're prioritizing production over the environmental outcomes. And even though more production means more supply, means lower prices, it's kind of, on on a gross perspective, it's a losing proposition. But for the individual, it's not. So this is the, the real um, paradox, right, of um, producing a commodity. You know, the more you produce, the lower the price goes. Um, and the only way to make more money is to produce more. Yeah, yeah. And so that is the paradox of a farmer who's producing a commodity grain. And so they feel like they're stuck on this treadmill, treadmill or in this system that they can't get out of. And there's some truth to that. Um, yeah. And then it's compounded, by the way, crop insurance works and is subsidized so we have publicly supported crop insurance and that's the main subsidy program right now and so you know look if you have a patch of ground that you know that's not uh, very dependable if you're able to get crop insurance for that piece of ground at a reduced price well you're more apt to plant on it or you're more apt to plant a high um, value crop like corn. And so, you know, with corn, the input costs are quite high, right? Higher than almost any other crop. And so the seed is very expensive. The fertilizer is expensive. The equipment's expensive. Um, the chemicals are expensive. The grain drying is expensive. And so the, they make a lot on corn, but the input costs are also very high. And so if, we reduce the risk associated with growing that crop on a piece of ground. You know, human nature is such that you're going to be more likely to plant that crop there instead of something like oats or alfalfa that might be a better choice for risky ground. I am old enough to remember when farmers, if you had bottom land, which was land, low land along a river that was likely to get flooded at least every few years. You just didn't plant it the years that, mm -hmm. that it flooded. Um, you know, if you had a wet spring, you just didn't plant that land. But then you'd get a bumper crop the years that you could plant mm -hmm. it because all of the um, – it was sort of self-fertilizing in a sense because mm -hmm. of the flood. And is that – does it work that way at all anymore? Well, you know, we should say, you know, human beings have been farming in floodplains since the dawn of agriculture. And so we look at the ancient Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and they and Native Americans, too. They liked farming in the floodplains. And so the soil is um, fertile in floodplains and um, oftentimes in dry years, you know, those that's the best land. But, right. you know, now in the modern day, when we've sort of achieved this 
tremendous production, um, why should we take these risks of farming in the floodplain? And so, for example, in Iowa, in the two-year floodplain, we have about 400,000 acres that are cropped to corn and soybeans. And so every other year, all the inputs on those acres are gone to the Gulf of Mexico every two years. So why are we doing that? You know, if if we had starving people, well, okay, maybe you can make that case, but, you know, we don't have starving people and so much of our corn is grown for ethanol production, over half of it. Um, it really uh, is difficult to rationalize why we grow crops in these high-risk areas. And from the individual farmer's perspective, it's not that hard to rationalize because they're going to get the crop insurance for it. Correct. Which yes. they, which is subsidized. So I think there was a statistic in here about like for every dollar that they invest in, that a farmer invests in crop insurance, they get a return over, I'm assuming that's over a period of time of, of two something, $2. That's something. right. Yeah. That's, that's nationwide. Yeah. Um, and so it it's uh it totally makes sense for farmers to buy crop insurance, um, you know, when you pencil it out. And so, as I say um, all the time, the problem isn't that farmers are evil. The problem is they're human beings, and so they're making <laughs> decisions, right, that many of us would make if we were presented with the same set of circumstances. Right. And so, you know, what that means is we need policy change so that we get the decisions that we want that really contribute to the common good and not just to the individual good of a farmer or an agribusiness, agribusiness person. That's one of the reasons that um, I'm, a, you know, as a business person, which I am, um, you know, I have a company, manufacturing company. So... I've never been anti-regulation because I personally want to do the right thing. But sometimes in a competitive situation, you can't do the right thing because it puts you out of business if nobody else is doing it. But if everybody is forced to do the right thing, then then you can comp still compete while doing the right thing. <laughs> but so not too many people see things that way. Yeah. So regulation of environmental outcomes would actually be good for the small farmer. Yes. Right? Because yes. if you're farming 4,000 acres, um, and let, let's just say for a point of argument, we require cover crops on all our cropped land. Well, if you're farming 4,000 acres, well, that gets pretty hard to manage cover crops on 4,000 acres, even if you can get the funds to plant it. Whereas if you're farming 400 acres, uh, you know, your time windows are much more generous and flexible and you're able to do more things. And so it's not uncommon to see farmers in Iowa where they have the home place, right, which might be 400 acres. And they've got all kinds of conservation on the home place. But then on their rented acres, you know, it's... Um, all systems go, right? We're going to do whatever we have to do, and there's very little conservation on rented acres in some cases. And so this is a big problem in Iowa since so much of our land is rented. Yeah, 
Yeah, I could see that. You know, I always thought that like tiling was a conservation method. (laughs) Well, they they would like you to believe that. (laughs) Yeah, it's like shocking to me to find out that it's not. The other thing I recently found out or learned the hard way was that um, water actually will run on the outside of a pipe underground as well. And it will. I yeah. found that out when my basement got flooded because of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it definitely will. Yeah. So um, talking about hog confinements, I just wanted to ask you about this California law. And do you think it will have any impact? Um, you know, it's one where that to sell pork into California at some point it keeps getting pushed pushed down and maybe it won't ever get enforced but if it does go into an enforcement that um, they won't that California will only buy pork that's raised uh, with each pig having a certain amount of space which is more than what most um, CAFOs provide at this point will that have any impact well it's certainly going to have impact something here you know the question is does it have any potential to affect environmental outcomes like water quality and i would say maybe but probably minimal and so you know if we increase the amount of space that these hogs need or are required to have well then that reduces the number of hogs you can have in a you know, in a defined area. So there's no doubt about that. Right. And so if it reduces the number of, the average number of hogs per operation, then presumably that will make the manure easier to handle because there'll be less of it. And so at least in theory, there's a potential for it to deliver some environmental outcomes. But, you know, I um, I really doubt that that's going to happen um simply because you know we have so many hogs here um 25 million at any one time and you know if we would really have to reduce that quite substantially i think to get better environmental outcomes without other sorts of changes now one of the reasons that we have so many hogs here is that we sell them to other countries sell pork to other countries, um, particularly China. Um, Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, when when China put in the tariffs, you know, I don't want to get started too much on tariffs (laughs) because I have a lot of negative experience with tariffs in my U.S. manufacturing um, company where if we buy a finished product from China, there's no tariff on it. But if we buy a component so that we can build the rest of it here, there is a tariff on that component. So it disincentivizes U.S. manufacturing, which is supposedly the opposite of what it was trying to accomplish. But that's the way it worked out. Anyway, um, so China put tariffs on soybeans as it's sort of quid pro quo for the tariffs on the China products. Did Was right. there no tariff put on pork? I don't recall if there were uh, tariffs on pork or not. Um, I don't think there were because, yeah. I mean, we kept these meat packing plants open all during COVID. Uh, yeah. 
so we could send pork over there. And so I don't think there were tariffs on the pork industry uh, during COVID uh, or, you know, during the Trump administration when the soybean tariffs um, were imposed by China. Right. Uh, and so, um, uh, yeah, you know, the globalization is an issue here, right? And there's a, an essay in the book about that. I think that one's called The Ethics of a Pig. And, and so, um, you know, many of the hogs here in Iowa are owned by China. Smithfield Foods is a huge um, hog producer here in Iowa. Many farmers raise hogs for Smithfield that meat goes over to China and then the pollution stays here. And so, you know, like I said in the essay, well, my shirt here might've been made in Bangladesh and my shoes made in Vietnam and my cell phone made in China. And, you know, presumably the manufacturer of all that, those items produce some pollution. Right. 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 So it's, and, yeah. So, so it's not just it's, agriculture. Yeah. No, but, you know, here in Iowa, you know, we're the ones, right, we're the ones that see the pollution that results from this activity. Uh, so we can send meat over to China. Right. And um, so, uh, you know, uh, these are big questions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was trying to figure out one time why China would want to import so much pork because I mean they could build CAFOs over there it, it seems like it would be easier to do um, but the but I did a little bit of checking and I think if I recall what I found out was that they did not have the capacity to at least at that point to grow enough grain to um, to feed the, the pigs and it's a lot cheaper to ship the finished good then it would be to ship all the the inputs for it because no. you take I mean how to get a hog how many pounds of grain do you does it yeah, take yeah I think to, uh, for a beef cattle beef cow for example it's like fourteen pounds of grain for one pound of meat it's less than that for a hog I think for a chicken it's maybe three to one and so yeah wow. is it yeah. cheaper to ship um, a pound of pork or 14 pound or a pound of beef or 14 pounds of grain to feed a cow that's over there in China. Well, of course it's right. easier right. to ship the meat over there. And so yeah. you're right. They don't have the grain capacity to produce the grain to produce all those animals over there. Now they do indeed have some large confinements in China. I'm sure. Uh, large yeah, ones. I'm sure they do. And they certainly do have some grain production. Probably, probably quite a lot, but as their population was moving towards eating more meat, mm -hmm. that was they weren't they hadn't caught up, and maybe they will. Maybe they will catch up, and and that market will dry up to some extent. So you know, I've I've been to China, and you know the people in the cities, uh, many of them are quite wealthy and do eat a lot of meat if you go out into the countryside um and the people of lesser means you know the diets tend to be a little different yeah. um, a lot of eggs um, they eat a lot of eggs in rural areas of china and um, less um, pork and beef and chicken meat yeah 
Now, it's interesting, one of the things that's happening in China now is that um, factories are moving inland and mm-hmm. away from the external, you know, where they've been, the Shenzhen, Guangdong mm-hmm. province. Um, and so as that happens, there's more um, economic activity in those rural mm-hmm. areas. But COVID kind of put the brakes on that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Chris, would you read one of your essays from the Swine Republic for us? Sure. And so um, I have one here um, that I call Big Pollution. And, you know, we have this complex problem in Iowa with our water quality and other environmental conditions. And to get a problem of the magnitude that we have takes a lot of people from a lot of different sections of our society. And so I worked in academia and I always said we were part of the problem in academia and NGOs were part of the problem. Government was part of the problem. Um, And yes, agribusiness and farmers were part of the problem, but a lot of times those of us, in academia and NGOs like to see ourselves as being the ones trying to solve it. When in fact, many times we helped uh, maintain the problem. And so that's what this essay is about. And my little intro paragraph here reads as such. A lot of people are earning decent livings because Iowa has a pollution problem. I am one of them. The the public holds many of us in high regard because presumably we are devoted not to money or career or stature, but to making Iowa's water cleaner. But are we? And so here's the essay. It's always been in the best interests of the ag industry to make nutrient pollution seem mysteriously complex. After all, complex problems rarely lend themselves well to simple solutions. Complex problems require lots and lots of time and money to solve. And the bigger the problem, the more likely the taxpayer is going to be asked to solve it with contributions from the public coffers. And the folks who own all this expensive farmland worth well more than 200 billion in Iowa surely can't be expected to own the pollution too. And remember, lest you get impatient, your tax dollar contributions are not so you not so you can enjoy clean water, but so maybe your children and hopefully their children might someday look at the Floyd, Iowa or Raccoon River and think, boy, I wish granddad was still alive so he could see those old tires beneath this clear water. <laughs> The folks at the NGOs and foundations also don't mind themselves a little complexity, thank you, because big donors like to think big and the public dollars can and do find their way into the cash-strapped budgets of nonprofit Landia. If you want to work on solving nutrient pollution, you'll probably meet this country's leaders at their capital, Starbucks City. to talk about grand visions and shared values over a cup of their national drink, French press coffee. And you may or may not know that the universities have always wanted nutrient pollution to be seen as a labyrinth of weather, 
climate, soil, microbiology, hydrology, chemistry, agronomy, economics, and sociology, a labyrinth that so completely confounds the scientists that they might have to gulp, call in the engineers to help disentangle the mess. And let me tell you, them boys is nothing if not expensive. No engineer would even so much as pick up a pencil for a simple problem. Complexity makes for some good grant proposals that include hip words like nexus and <laughs> interdisciplinary and benchmark and resilience. And perhaps stating the obvious, people don't spend years getting PhDs to work on simple problems. So you've probably heard of big oil, big ag, and its subsidiaries, big meat, big dairy, and big organic, big government, big pharma, big tobacco, and some other bigs. Now I'm going to tell you, I think we have another one here in Iowa, big pollution. We have a whole bunch of people whose livelihoods and relevance link back to water pollution and especially nutrient pollution. I admit to being a card-carrying member but I am not one of the brotherhood or sisterhood of big pollution currently clamoring to monetize the latest craze, soil health practices. Like the poor water quality it purportedly will help improve, people want to tell you how complex this topic of soil health is and how it requires experts from all branches of big pollution to help spend the taxpayer money currently on a barge traveling up the Mississippi River, destination Iowa and other Corn Belt states. The absurdity of this was recently featured in a Des Moines Register editorial written by an Iowa farmer. He described how reduced tillage and continuous cover, therefore using cover crops, improved his bottom line $138 per acre while reducing nitrate loss from the farm. He goes on to speculate why more farmers don't do this, because it's scary. Bear in mind, this is a group that seemingly will buy skunk piss from a certified crop advisor if that person promises the infamous two to five bushel yield bump. Okay, I'm kidding on the skunk piss, but listen closely to the radio or TV when a commercial comes on for any ag product. It's always two to five bushels, but I digress. Back to the register editorial. The farmer writes that, quote, it's time for our elected leaders in Des Moines and Washington, D.C. to help us with research, technical support, and incentives. If you haven't noticed, big pollution just loves more research, the universities, more technical support, the NGOs and the agencies, and more incentives, the ag industry. This farmer goes on to say that, quote, state legislators, legislators can take a step in the right direction by supporting House File 646 this session, a bill that would lay the groundwork for helping farmers adopt the practices. Well, it goes without saying the nonprofit Landians are gleeful about House File 646, hoping as they are that the road to Ag Damascus will be an eight lane highway that takes decades to pave and that will run right through the middle of their country. 
Hopefully no coffee shops will be in the path. Several politicians on the left are equally giddy cosplaying environmentalism and celebrating the bill as a potential milestone with big ag finally coming around to the century old idea that slash and burn farming maybe is suboptimal in the long haul. If at this point you think I'm just an angry old cynic shaking his fist at the sky, well, so be it. But this writing comes on the heel heels of an, yet another person on the inside telling me late last week about the copious amounts of nitrogen fertilizer used by the typical Iowa farmer. And phosphorus is an even worse horror story. Piling manure phosphorus onto soils categorized as already very high for this nutrient is de rigueur and always will be until a majority in the legislature can summon the courage to protect your water and say enough is enough. So if you ask why, oh, why do we continue to concoct schemes to pay farmers to try to restrain the excess nutrients we allow them to buy and apply? Two words, big pollution. I will finish this with a story from about two years ago. I'd be hesitant to recount this here were it not for the fact that there were a couple hundred witnesses to the event. At the soil 2019 meeting in Des Moines, a conservation farmer and one-time candidate for Secretary of Agriculture said if the public wanted the nitrogen problem solved, they needed to, quote, show me the money. My opinion, paying farmers for soil health without first addressing the nutrient imbalance on our landscape is the biggest can kick in conservation history, at least in the context of water quality. But as always, big pollution thanks you for your contribution. <laughs> And thank you, Chris. That was yeah. Chris Jones reading from the Swine Republic. Okay, well, very good. <laughs> so, you know, this soil health thing is really a big fad now in the conservation world. And, of course, guess who gets to pay for it? You know, the taxpayer. And so rather than make laws uh, requiring farmers to do certain things, we have these government programs that pay them to do it and then People in academia and the NGO world all benefit from this, right? Right. And so that's a, a point, a theme I have in many of the essays. But wouldn't the wouldn't those people benefit even if it was forced rather than incentivized to do that? Wouldn't they benefit more in a way because everybody would have to do it then? So if so, good point. And so would there be? Uh, money or research proposal money for people in academia if we had a law requiring farmers to do one thing or another. And I would say uh, there might be, but there certainly would be less. And so uh -huh. we tend to study the same things over and over and over again when it comes to especially nutrient pollution in the Corn Belt. Why do we do that? Because there's no progress. And it's not because we don't know what the solutions are. It's not <laughs> mysterious. Like I said, this whole thing with people wanting to, you to believe this problem is big and complex and mysterious. Well, 
okay. we want a bunch of money to study this, right? It's got to be right. complex. Let's, but let's simplify things for a moment. I would think that a farmer would want to put the minimal amount of inputs on that they that would yield the best result. Why why are they motivated or, or why do they put more on than they need? So some of it is convenience. Uh, a lot of what they do is convenience. Um, inputs also are a way to manage risk. And so nitrogen fertilizer, for example, we know if it rains a lot, you're going to lose a lot. And so there's a tendency to put more on than what you need just in case it rains a lot. Well, would they do that if they were financially and legally responsible for the environmental consequences of the loss? Well, no, they wouldn't. And so, you know, we need policies, as I say, to create the decisions that we want. And so if they're using more than what they actually need in an average year, well, to me, that tells them that thing that they're buying should be taxed at a higher level. Yeah. So we know, yes. for example, uh, taxing cigarettes reduces cigarette smoking. So, yeah. <laughs> so so the nitrate fertilizer should be taxed to pay for the cleanup. Correct. That seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about why you retired? Well, uh, you know, there was, um, I've known all along that what I was writing on my blog was not um, very um, pleasing to some people in the industry and some people in the legislature. And, and so this past March, a couple of the guys in the legislature came to the University of Iowa and said that, um, look, if you're over here at the Capitol asking for money, uh, during the legislative session for various programs, especially the Iowa Flood Center, um, you really can't be letting this guy write this stuff. And so, you know, my boss came to me with this, and, you know, we always knew this would happen. And so, you know, we agreed that I would write one more piece, sort of a sayonara piece, and that I would consider taking um, my writing to an off-campus domain. And so I wrote the last piece, and I very extremely gently implied that, you know, this was all happening um, because of pressure from the legislature. I was told that that could not be in the, the final piece, that I couldn't mention or imply that. And I said, well, I disagreed with this. I felt that this was not a free speech issue at this point. It was more of an ethics issue, and so when we tell researchers that they can't mention or even imply something that objectively happened, you know, that's a pretty slippery slope for an institution and called to question the integrity of the institution. And, but I said, I would do it. I would edit that. And I did, but before posting it, I spent about a week or so thinking about the whole thing and decided if I did take my writing to an off-campus domain, it, still would be getting quite a bit of scrutiny from 
people in the legislature and the industry, and I did not want to put other people's jobs at risk. And so at that point, I just decided to retire. You know, I had intended to work another year at least, but, um, you know, I thought the signs were there that I should probably get out. So what's next for you? More writing? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I'm still writing. I have a Substack. It's riverraccoon.substack.com. And so I'm posting essays there. I have my book. I'm reasonably sure I'll have a second book. My book now is is doing quite well, and so I think <laughs> being I, being forced out probably helped that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt. You know, I'm not going to pretend that it didn't help. Uh, it most certainly did, and so there was a, you know, there was some dumb luck here, without a doubt, that all this stuff at the legislature happened at the same time my book was coming out. Yeah, yeah, and um, will it be a similar? book of essays your next I don't one? know I don't know for sure you know I'm kind of um, I mean it could be um, I think this thing <laughs> that I have going here these thousand word essays that are sort of polemics right and um, with some humor sprinkled in and um, I mean it works it does it definitely <laughs> works <laughs> but I, um, so did you, you know, ever expect uh, that that writing would be your like no, third act career. <laughs> no, I stumbled into this. I completely admit that. Um, well, we're so glad you know, you did. I have some other interests that I might pursue with my writing, and so we'll just have to see. How about politics? No. Uh, <laughs> well, I figure you're, if you're brave enough to say these things, somebody has to get up and do it in the political realm. Well, I'm trying to give uh, some people in politics some cover, right? Yes. To say yeah. some of these things. And so that's what I see my role here. Um, well, thank and, you for doing that. And yeah. sure. And I highly recommend this book to anyone who has an interest in water, which should be all of us, shouldn't it? Uh, you yeah. know, we, we always end uh, Writer's Voices with a quote. And I found uh, a quote from 1732 from Thomas Fuller, don't know who that is, but he said, we never know the worth of water till the well is dry. So true, so or true. polluted. Yeah, or polluted, <laughs> or polluted. So thank you so much for being with us today, Chris. Okay, well, thanks for having me on. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. <laughs>